Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The haunting of Unit 409. You never know what's behind a locked door. And the romance and mystery of all those locked doors was perhaps what attracted John Shaw there in the first place. He'd worked security up at Kingmoor and down at the site in Whitehaven. Before that, he was on a merchant ship for a while. Something about the job at the storage depot attracted him more than all of his previous engagements. What could be behind 612 locked doors, all of them neatly padlocked, all of them hiding somebody's secret behind their green metal faces? The storage units came in 125 square foot, or 75 square foot, or smaller, and there were hundreds of them, so plenty of room for mysteries. John Shaw had settled down to mainly work night shifts. Perhaps it was the darkness or the quiet of the place in the dead of the night that drew him to those hours. Sometimes he worked nights with Billy Laidlaw from Harraby, sometimes with Polish Dan from Dowbeck, and sometimes with Ian McGurk from Annan. But mostly on nights he was on his own. The storage units can be found in an old leather factory on a half-deserted industrial estate that nestles not far from the city centre, but you wouldn't find it easily because it's buried in a wasteland of pulled-up railway tracks, disused Victorian gas holders and abandoned caravans. And at night, it was very quiet. So quiet that you might think the building sucked in the silence, drinking it into its old bricks and making it ooze thickly dropping drip by drip by drip in the wee hours of the night. You could get mesmerised by that quiet, and then your meditation might be disturbed by the bark of a fox, or the shout of a drunk, or the yee-yaw siren of a speeding ambulance. But they were normal, and all out of sight behind the big walls and chained iron gates. So this night, in October, John Shaw was going to be working alone. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Polish Dan was rostered on to be with him, but Polish Dan hadn't turned up, and Scotch Ian wasn't due till 7am. So, it was just our man John Shaw from Curragh, all alone with the 612 locked rooms and the 612 secrets they held. Their contents might be mundane or mysterious, but they were all secret, and what they hid was out of sight, sitting quiet by itself, settling in. At least, and that's what John Shaw thought, John Shaw on his own, and the night, and the long hours draining by, and the shifting silence, and the whispering. Not that he heard that at first. Like I say, it was a Friday in October, not long after 9pm. The boss, Julie, had been in on the back shift, and Dan was supposed to come in, so there would be two on nights. 
If he's sick, he should have called in, Julie said. Dan, I mean. Was he on nights last night? Yeah, and Ian said he was all right this morning. John shrugged. We often don't have two on nights. She sighed. Billy was supposed to be on with him last night, but we're so short. I've shifted Billy till Sunday. Julie grimaced. John guessed she didn't like paying for the extra staff much. She said, We've had word that the place is being targeted by someone who thinks there's something worth nicking in here. Well, John said, they're not supposed to lock anything valuable up in their storage units. Exactly, Julie said. No foodstuffs, no dangerous chemicals, no weapons, no explosives, especially no valuables. She pointed to the poster on the wall, and in the contracts the customers had to sign. Still, who knows what they ferreted away in these units away from the prying eyes of the staff. John said they've only got padlocks on them, so they'd be stupid to store anything valuable here. The lights flickered. Wind's getting up, Julie said. John shrugged. It didn't matter to him. He wouldn't be going outside. He had his flask of coffee and sandwiches, crisps, tins of pop, and a ready meal from Little that he would microwave about 3am. They couldn't see outside directly from the office because it had no windows, and pigeon shit and moss covered most of the skylight. On the desk, two large monitors sat, not so high resolution, but good enough for general surveillance. Both monitors were squared into four screens. The right showed four views of the empty corridors. The left showed four views of the empty night outside. The funeral director opposite was shut. The antique dealer closed. The town and country interiors warehouse with the way sat in darkness, all locked up. None of those businesses had night staff. So, on this whole business estate, the old leather factory in other words, there would be just John on his own that night. The nearest other humans would be the delivery drivers from the pizza shop across the railway tracks and over the grimy, soot-stained eight-foot wall and past the brownfield development land. The storage depot itself was cocooned by a wilderness of roads, industrial units, briars, bindweed and rats. John didn't like to think about the rats. He hoped the owls ate them all, because there were owls too, and on still nights they hooted all night long. But it wasn't still tonight. It was windy, and the owls would be taking shelter and keeping quiet. Inside the storage unit, traps with rat poison were positioned along corridors and in corners. Folk weren't supposed to store food in the units in case it attracted rodents. Some did. But also maybe the rats came out of simple curiosity, wondering what was locked up behind all those metal doors with their shiny, flimsy padlocks. Then Julie was gone, and John was glad. Not that he didn't like her, but he preferred being on his own. Now it was quiet, he poured himself a tea from his thermos flask into a mug that said, John, the man, the myth, the legend. The tea steamed, and he sipped it and watched the monitors. Nothing moved on the outside screens to the left. Nothing moved among the myriad blank corridors to the right. He sipped more tea 
Spain, he looked at the paper. He was a Liverpool fan and read the report about the game against Stoke City. He'd read it before, but it was nice to read about wins more than once. He glanced at the clock on the wall. 9.15pm. He was here until 7am. He might watch Netflix on his phone, but his eyes weren't as good as they used to be, and the screen was small. He'd been enjoying the expanse on Amazon Video, but Series 4 wasn't as good as Series 3. So far, anyway. John finished his tea. The wind rumbled round outside the storage unit. The monitors showed more blank, silent pictures like still lives, or still deaths, or stillborn loves and stillborn dreams and hopes behind the still iron doors, standing sentry of all those put-away possessions. Time for a wander round. Maybe later he'd switch off the strip lights that ran along the long passages to save money for Julie. But for now, he let them burn. Long tubes of glowing gas that flickered in tip-tap time. And if you spent too long in their luminous company, you ended up with a banging headache. John stepped out of the office with its bare desks and curling invoices and the friendly, peeling, false-leather computer chair and took one last look at the twin monitor screens, unchanging, unenlightening, unmoving, unmoved. His footsteps echoed on the concrete floor as he strolled past rat traps and padlocks and door after door after door, all green, all metal, all locked. And John was relieved when he turned the corner because that at least gave a change of scene. But soon the new scene was as familiar as the one he'd walked out of. More doors, more locks, more secrets, more things locked away. He laughed. Why did his imagination run riot like this on night shift? Probably normal. Secrets, eh? Most people's secrets weren't much. And ordinary lives didn't interest John. They were like his. Boring. He went to work, watched the football, went to the Howard Arms with Maisie and the William Rufus for a good meal with Pete, rang his lad who lived in Sunderland, talked to his mates, most of whom he'd known from school forty years before. Proper Carlisle lads they were, and lasses, charvers and bewers. John's footsteps tapped out on the floor. He'd almost done an entire circuit now. He was on the four hundreds, which weren't the furthest. Weirdly, the two hundreds were further away from the entrance than them. The numbering made little sense until you realised that the storage unit had taken over the disused leather factory piecemeal, elbowing out others who'd previously staked a claim. Storage was big business, and it hungrily devoured smaller, weaker businesses that had occupied the old leather factory once. The auction house business would be next. The storage units would take over that in their turn and fill it with blank metal units and their silent metal mouths. In fact, they weren't mouths. They didn't have tongues, for one thing. He laughed for thinking such a thing. It was then that he heard it. It sounded like whispering. At first he thought he'd pocket-dialed somebody. 
or his walking had pressed play on Amazon and the expanse was muttering its interstellar secrets to his leg. He checked, but it wasn't his phone. The phone was silent, showing gleaming icons, but saying nothing. But the whispering went on. Had someone left a radio on or something in one of the units? He stopped and tilted his head. The voice, it was a voice, came from just ahead. It was faint and it didn't sound like a radio program. It sounded like one of the old boys who sit in pub corners talking to themselves. John walked along the passage, curious now, listening at each door. It was ahead and left. He counted the numbers on the doors, 406, 407, 408, 409. That was it, 409. The muttering came from Unit 409. John put his ear to the green metal door. It was cold. He listened and heard. A voice came from inside, but... It wasn't speaking to him. It, it must be a radio or something, but it didn't sound like a radio program. It, it was a voice talking in a language he didn't understand. What was it? Polish? Urdu? Welsh? He shook his head. It was like a tape of someone. Maybe like an old home movie where Grandad's telling a story and nobody's listening, but they taped it because it was Christmas or summer holidays in the caravan. But it didn't sound quite like that either. John shuddered. The wind was louder outside now, while the voice prattled on. It was a little voice. He didn't know why he'd said that, a little voice. But it was. He guessed the battery on the tape recorder would die eventually, and the voice would stop. He smiled, he walked on, completing his lonely circuit, and arriving back at the office. This time, for some reason. He locked the office door from the inside, and he went to the monitors and scanned them, just in case something might be moving outside the storage warehouse. Or even inside. They had been targeted, Julie'd said that. And then John flicked his eyes from the left screen over to the right, to the cameras that showed the empty passages with their faceless, windowless, featureless green metal doors all the numbers adding up until they got to 600, 612 to be exact. No one moved there either. Not even a rat. He drank more tea, had a packet of XL cheese crisps, flicked through the paper, and letting the page drop from his thumb, went back to the monitors. The branches that showed on the screens were swaying about crazily. The wind. John's mind wandered. When he came back to himself, it was past midnight. Where did the time go? He sighed, rubbed his eyes. Night shifts numbed your brain. He squeezed his face. He'd go for another wander to stretch the legs and pass the time. He unlocked the office door and stepped out. It was cold, suddenly cold. There was an odd smell, too. He couldn't place it. Something like sweat and leaves mingled. John had forgotten about the voice in Unit 409 until he got into the 300s. Then he remembered. 
and he was mildly curious to hear if it was still prattling on, or if the battery had died, and it was silent. Before he turned the corridor into the four hundreds, he heard it. It was louder than before. How could that be? The battery should be draining, and the sound fading. And the wind was louder, rushing about the storage depot, so how could this muttering, whispering, whatever it was, sound louder? For the first time, John Shaw realised he was scared. He was alone. The bunch of keys that jingled from his belt as he walked along, went silent as he stood, listening. That smell was more pungent too, old sweat and old leaves, like an old tramp who lived in the fields or something that's burrowed up from the ground. Instead of completing his circuit, John turned on his heel. He walked quickly back to the office and locked the door. Imagination, it was pure imagination. But it's funny what imagination could do to you. It was just the whispering and the smell together. And the fact it got louder when it should have got quieter and then the wind going wild outside and the fact it was the middle of the night and he was on his own and all of that. Settling in the office, John took up his paper. He caught the movement out of the corner of his eye from the right-hand monitor. But when he glanced over, all was still. It showed the internal corridors where nothing should be moving at all, but something was. To be fair, he sometimes saw rodents. There was nothing there now. It was probably just a rat. The fluorescent light flickered. Damn this wind. And just when his nerves were shaky, he'd have his microwave meal soon. It wasn't properly timed, but it would take his mind off things. John stood from the peeling computer chair that always seemed such a comfort and stepped over to the office door to check he'd locked it. He hadn't. He twisted the key and felt it clunk round, locked. He breathed in relief and pushed his hand through his sandy hair. What was the need to lock it? There was no one here. The internal doors were all bolted tight. He patted the bunch of keys at his hip. He was the only one who could get in or out. The microwave pinged. He ate his meal, watched TV on his phone, straining his eyes. He didn't like to look at the monitors now, but every quarter of an hour or so, he forced himself. There was nothing. Of course not. He should go for another walk around. Not that anyone would know if he didn't, but he would know. John was a conscientious man, not a dosser or a shirker. He should go. He looked at the door with its black key turned, and he didn't move. He moistened his lips. He swallowed. And that's what she was paying him to do. Finally, he stood, walked to the door, turned the key, pulled the handle, yanked the door open, and stepped out. And that odd smell was stronger. The wind pummeled the building. He imagined the old leather factory where thousands of hides had hung. All those slaughtered cattle down the hundred and fifty years it had been open. And he walked a bit quickly and not paying attention. There was nothing to pay attention to. And then he reached the end of the three hundreds. The smell soaked the place now. 
and it stunk. He put his hand to his nose. It was more organic, deeper, older, stranger. Two steps before John turned into the 400's passage, he nearly retched. He slammed his hand over his mouth. Had something broken open, some container, and the liquid leaked out? He should go and check. 409. He turned into the 400's and stopped and stepped back, hand to his throat. The door of Unit 409 hung open. It had been padlocked, and the padlock had been on the outside. The door wasn't forced or bent, though even from here he could see stains on the inside at the bottom, like something corrosive had spilled onto the door. The door swung wide. It looked like someone had opened the door. And if someone had opened it, that meant someone was in here with him, locked in here with him. But John had the only keys, and the outside doors were bolted shut, which meant that someone had been in here with him all this time. Bullshit. Not possible. He tapped the keys. He'd seen no one. But then there had been that movement on the monitor. Just a flicker, maybe a glitch, almost certainly nothing. It was undoubtedly nothing, just an electrical jitter. The lights had been flickering all night with this wind. It was just that. There was no one in this old warehouse with him. There couldn't be. Just John. And the skins of all those dead animals. He breathed out, he shook his head. He didn't approach Unit 409. The whispering was going on still. It came from inside Unit 409. And he knew it wasn't a tape recorder or a radio. Something was in there. The padlock hung around the hasp, four feet away, lying on the floor, and it was still clicked shut, locked. It couldn't be taken off without the key. Only the renter of this unit had the key. Their name would be in the books in the office. He hadn't checked. He never checked who had which unit. It wasn't his job. He didn't normally care. He tiptoed close enough to see into the unit. He'd hung in shadow. And the voice whispered from inside. Unseen. John's phone had a torch function, so he pointed the light into the gloom. There was something in there. What the hell was all that? He saw now it was half full of mouldy boxes. The boxes were made of wood, but old. They had mildew and moss growing on them, and the whispering came from inside one. They weren't big boxes, not coffin-sized or anything. Most people kept things in cardboard boxes, but these were wood, old wood and damp and stinking. They smelled of leaves and mould, but also sweat, animal sweat or human sweat. He didn't know which, or maybe something that was sometimes an animal and sometimes a man. The wind moaned outside, the lights flickered. John did not step.
into Unit 409. He would report it to the morning shift. Now he would go back to the office and lock it and wait until it was day and someone came. Scotch Ian was on early's. Scotch Ian was daft. He joked about nout. He prattled on about less than nout. But he was human. John wanted to see Scotch Ian or Polish Dan, big Polish Dan, all six foot three of him. John Shaw looked one more time into Unit 409 and turned. Whatever was in there, making that whispering, it wasn't like a normal thing. Whatever had come out of those old, damp boxes wasn't a person like him. John didn't close the door of Unit 409. In fact, he didn't go within six feet. In fact, he turned and ran. All the lights in the storage unit died before he was halfway back. And now he got lost on those long corridors with all their doors, 612 doors. John Shaw stood in the absolute pitch black and he heard something coming, whispering, crawling down the passage in the dark towards him. John fumbled for his phone. He stabbed at the touchscreen. The torch wouldn't go on like that. You had to long press it. His hand shook. The sound crawled closer and closer, and the smell slithered along like slugs along the corridor walls. Finally, the torch beam snapped on. John turned it and shone it. There was somebody there. Somebody small. Somebody who stared round the corner of the passage, long, thin fingers on the wall, black, blinking eyes, teeth like needles. And when John's beam fell on him, he darted back as if he was shy. But he wasn't shy. He was playing a game. John screamed and ran down the corridor, his heavy work boots thudding on the concrete floor. He got to the office door and saw the monitors were off. There was no light except the light of his torch. He pushed the door. That didn't work. He dragged the door open and behind smelled the stink of grime and wet and blood and death. Somehow, inside the smell and inside that whispering in a language older than time, Someone small, with teeth like needles. And John thought, Who had brought those boxes here? Or had they brought themselves? With a shaking hand he slammed and locked the door behind him. He was safe in the office, but the small person, with teeth like needles, was in the office already playing peekaboo from behind the chair. And then the small thing jumped. Scotch Ian unlocked the doors at seven. He scratched his head. John should have unlocked them before now. And then Scotch Ian couldn't find John Shaw. So he rang Julie. He's been here because his paper's here and the remains of his meal, Ian said. But he's no here now. Well, he's not getting paid if he's nicked off, Julie said. One other thing, boss, Ian said. What? Unit 409 is open. 
Julie didn't speak. Then she said, 409. Aye, you said we should never open that one. No, Julie said. But sometimes it opens itself. Everybody dies, don't they? So, that was the haunting of Unit 409. And this is just a very, very recent story. And I only finished it last week, and you may say that it shows the signs of a hasty production. But I was finishing it because I wanted it to come out for Halloween as part of my more Cumbrian ghost stories. The first volume I did of Cumbrian ghost stories was pretty successful in a modest way. And uh, I've done some more. And it includes such wonders, even if I say so myself, as the shadow people of Kendall, a brief stop at Barrow in Furness, the mole catcher of Barbon, the butcher of Botcherby, the High Harrington horror, the Netherhall boggle, or the tricking of Lord Thomas of Naworth. There's loads of them, loads of them. Or the screaming skulls of Calgarth. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of them, but I wanted to get this one out. So let me say something about this story, because you haven't read the others or heard the others, because they haven't been published. So this story is inspired by my house move. If you follow my ramblings on the uh, podcast, you'll realise that I'm in the middle of a house move. No, I'm not actually. I'm towards the end of it now. So we've got the house. We've paid for the house. The furniture moved in yesterday. I'm not moving. I'm not sleeping there till Saturday. Sheila's there tonight. And uh, it's finally all coming together, which has it's been a horrendous, nearly said a rude word there. It's been horrendous uh, six, seven months. It's been really, 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 if, I, if I'd thought it was going to be this awful, we had trouble with solicitors and all sorts. But as somebody um, commented, they don't want to know what I have for breakfast. And the truth is I don't even eat breakfast. I have a coffee. So I'm not going to tell you what I had for breakfast, which, which is nothing. So I suppose I did tell you. I'm not going to go into this, except it is germane to tell you the genesis of this story. Because um, we had to put our house stuff, they call it furniture, I think, in storage. And we had to have two units, I had a, a unit full of boxes. My boxes, Sheila's crystals. We had other things like pots and pans and electrics and all that kind of thing. But mainly it was books of mine on the left-hand side. Books of Sheila's on the right-hand side. I've got it, I hope you're not scandalised by this, but tarot cards and crystals. Like, she's got so many crystals, she could run a crystal shop. And we had a bit of a thing about, she was saying, you've got more stuff than me. And I'm going, you have got more stuff than me. Whereas mine is only books. And I, I haven't read those books for 30 years, but it doesn't matter because I need to keep them for some unfathomable reason. I don't actually know why I need to keep them because I love them, because I love them. That's why. Um, she loves her crystals, to be fair. And I quite like crystals because they're shiny and I like shiny things. Anyway, so I ended up spending a lot of time in the storage unit, I would go and deliver carloads over days and days and days. And I got to know the guys who worked there. And honestly, it is this old leather factory in Carlisle. And it's, um, it has been taken over by a storage unit. There is an antique dealer. There is a town and country outfitters. But they're all going to be gobbled up by the storage business because storage is really big business. It's an expanding market. So it was so wonderful because on, on the weekend sometimes I'd be the only person wandering around. And there were literally hundreds of these locked units, all that looked the same. So I got speaking to one of the lads who worked there. And I asked him if they had night staff on. And they don't. 
but that's that's such a waste. So sto- Scott's storage in Carlisle, which I would recommend if you need to store your things in Carlisle, which I, I appreciate maybe not really practical for many of you, but um, I would recommend them. They're very friendly people. And when I didn't use um, some of my time, they actually gave me a refund. Can you believe that? That was amazing. So there's a recommendation, product placement. But I, I spent a lot of time there and I grew to love it. And now we've moved all our stuff out. I want to just keep some things there so I can keep visiting. But they don't have night, night shifts, which is a big waste. So another influence is The Nightwire by um, H.F. Arnold, which I read. And that, there's that lovely confiding nighttime thing going on, night shift. And I admitted elsewhere that I wanted to be a late night DJ. Except I can't stay up late, so I don't know how I'm going to do that. And also, I don't think they have them anymore. Certainly not here. Well, I wouldn't know because I'm always asleep, so maybe they do. Maybe there's a whole world of nighttime DJs. But I wanted to be one, although I wasn't constitutionally set out for it because I fall asleep too easily. But there we are, the Nightwire. That's one influence. Scott's storage is another influence. The third influence, I suppose, is... My own experience of working night shifts, I don't work night shifts now, but I certainly have done my share. And there is definitely something, and we used to be on our own generally. So there is something about sitting in in these, um, in my case, in a hospital building. My part of the hospital was completely empty apart from me. And there's something quite spooky about that. But being me, I thought it was pretty great. I thought it was deliciously spooky. So I enjoyed it. Um, But... Some people were freaked out. Some people got really scared, but not me. I liked it. Um, Working nights. And I did manage to stay awake most of the time. Yeah, don't tell my old manager that I sometimes fell asleep. So yeah, the night wire, my night shift, Scott's storage. And the the fourth influence on this, I don't know if you ever saw a video that was made to advertise some kind of alcohol. Anyway, I can't even remember what it was some kind of schnapps or something. Um, and it's the Judder Man. And it, it's a fantastic, you can see it on YouTube. And the Judder Man's pretty scary. And I think he's based on the German Struvel Peter. I don't know if you come across, he's a very spindly sort of Jack Frost type character, but he's not frosty. And he's fairly horrible. I suppose he was also behind um, Edward Scissorhands. Perhaps, yeah. So the Judder Man is a version of the Struvel Peter who's a scary Germanic creature. And I just imagined. And so what happened? What is the, what happened in this story? Well, this, it's a leather story, a leather factory. So it's soaked in dead hides that were cured there. So I guess I'm saying that somehow this imbued the bricks with the horror of the death and slaughter, perhaps. Also not necessarily related that people keep their secrets and some secrets may not be particularly pleasant secrets and perhaps somebody was murdered and kept in a box or I think actually it's the the little the little man with the sharp needle teeth who plays peekaboo in games he is a spirit not a human spirit but he's a spirit of the place he's come from the earth And so he represents nature, I suppose, and the not vindictive, but consuming side of nature. In a recent video in my rambles, I was talking about, I was reporting that I'd seen a YouTube video where somebody was talking about 
what scares us. And I do take an interest in this. And she, she mentioned things being out of control and uh, the, the fear of brutality and the uncanny valley. And I think I can boil all those down into, I think a basic human fear is to, of being predated. We have a deep primal, certainly I must have, because I often write stories about being eaten. Yeah, actually really common. But I, my stories have a thing about that you get eaten. So I think for me, that primal fear of being predated is very deep. It just started to rain suddenly very heavily. So that um, scared me a little bit, actually, because I'm sitting in the house, in my mother's house, before I leave, obviously. She's out playing bridge, just me at the top of the house. And it's just started to rain. And I'm all alone. And I don't know if you can hear the rain. And, and oh, there's... What's, there's somebody coming up the stairs, but how can that be? Because there's only me in the house. Anyway, if I survive, I'll speak to you next week. Um, call to action bef before... There's no real point if this murderer comes up the stairs, is it? But a uh, call to action is... Um, yeah, like the video. If it's a video you're watching, if it's uh, an Apple podcast or a Spotify podcast or whatever you can do, you know, do your best and comment and spread the word and I will, I will always remember your kindness. Anyway, ramble on, as Led Zeppelin said. Ramble on. Okay, and I'm going to ramble off. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?